I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. I should ask you this, Greg, because I've never seen even a single episode. How was the Logan's Run TV series? The Logan's was Run it, TV series? Well, <laughs> no. If it was terrible, it would be more fun. It's average. It's it's just by the numbers. It's, um, well, basically, they had one idea on how to do science fiction in the 70s, and that is The Fugitive but each week you arrive in a different weird theme village. <laughs> like, this is the village of the androids. So, this this is, is the so village it's just Taylor of, Shades of the TV Western, which is exactly the same thing. Too, yeah, right? yeah. It's just, it's it's all wagon train, yeah. basically, yeah. which is, you know, that's what Star Trek spun out of. of it was... Uh, Planet of the Apes was another fugitive show. Yeah, yeah. Planet of the Apes, The Incredible Hulk, that's all they knew how to do. And Logan's Run was basically like that. They break out of the City of Domes, they steal a hovercraft, that's basically a shell dropped on top of like, I don't know, a VW chassis or something. It looked like some sort of weird cross between a VW bus and an Airstream trailer motorhome <laughs> with, you know, like weird lightning bolts painted on the side. Francis at the Sandman is chasing them. They're in their little hovercraft. The, the thing that was dumb about it was that it was like self-inflicted Gilligan syndrome. Because if the premise of Logan's run is to get away from the city of domes and get out and live free and age and raise a family, Mm -hmm. any one of these villages where they beat the little feudal overlord or solved their problem, they could have just settled. They could have just Mm -hmm. hung out. But Mm -hmm. no, we have to keep running. We have more civilizations to destroy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it was just it was like a straw man pseudo post-apocalypse civilization that they knock down every week oh it's just was this like the movie oh what's mike was the name of it? we watched it at my birthday party about the the prehistoric man who lives in the future what is it future hunter future hunter oh you're talking about your hunter from the future yeah, your hunter from the future it's just like your hunter from the future he just runs around to various places and makes various peoples and animals extinct like that's what he does yeah just, just genocide so it as is you a- do Individual episodes were better than others. They got real science fiction people like Harlan Ellison and Dorothy Fontana and mm. David Gerald. A lot of the Star Trek usual suspects showed up there. Sure. Um, and uh, frankly, a lot of Star Trek concepts got recycled, like, you know, mm. separating people into their good and evil selves and et cetera. Sure. Um, but it was, you know, I was 12. It passed. Right. The, it was, you got to understand that before. Star Wars, we took what we got, right, of course, and and we would kind of look at it and go, "Well, it's almost good." Right. Well, and <laughs> you know, was, you can even you know, say that about original Star Trek, as heretical as it as it is. That's so much of it is just goofy, and that, but but then every so often there'll be one little touch, a touch of something, and it'll be like, "That is clever. That's mm-hmm. something that I've never seen before." You know? Yeah. The trouble was is that Logan's Run, you know, it didn't, it wasn't meant to be. A series, although even right. its own original author turned it into a series. 
William Nolan wrote three novels about Logan, and the hmm. last time I looked, he was trying to jumpstart a comic book series spinning out of the, the books. I don't but, remember. I mean, I saw it at your house, Ryan, uh, for the first and mm. first time that I saw it. And and uh, you know, this is for for people who are twenty years your junior. Um, <laughs> looking back on it after already having all, right. all of Star Wars and Star Trek: The Next Generation and lots and lots and lots of other things, um, it's sort of it's it was notable because of it's sort of camp, you know, that yeah. can't be part of. Yeah, it. I, that was what was good about it. I thought right. Um, was that it wasn't as polished. I felt the same way about the original Battlestar Galactica stuff that I saw back then. Um, you know, it was good because it was weird, you know. Because <laughs> uh, like, it was bad, almost. Sets. Yeah. Awesome I, yeah. Sets. I think there's sort of a retro sci-fi look. There's sort of a, a flavor that I find mm-hmm. very attractive, and Logan's Run is full of it. Sort mm-hmm. of the... People in jumpsuits, maybe they have a stripe down the side of their jumpsuit, running in silver <laughs> cities. There's rockets that are like silver tubes, and laser guns look like the sort of things that you'd buy at like a dollar store. <laughs> and it'd be like a water pistol built in that design that you stopped really seeing after Star Wars. And they started making sci-fi guns look like modified real guns. Mm-hmm. Like all the guns in Star Wars are based off of real guns. So the idea of having right. one that's this like group of... I don't know. It's like ball, smaller ball, smaller ball, smaller ball, <laughs> then barrel. And there's like a crazy trigger or something on it. I mean, it, that sort of gun kind of went away. Um, also with the pew-pew lasers kind of went away too. And I, I miss that a little bit. And I think that the Flash Gordon movie from 1982 is probably my favorite version of that. Because a lot of the things I think we love – aren't as good as we remember them, or there's parts of them that are as good as we remember them, but they're kind of spaced out by some boring stuff. Yeah. And I thought Flash Gordon was a really good way of taking all the good parts and mixing them with, with good middle parts, too, so it right. kind of keeps you into it. Because that's as good as that kind of pulp stuff for me has ever really gotten. It sort of like took all of the stuff that I wanted it to be and, and made a movie out of it and had a Queen soundtrack, which <laughs> is a really good way to win and, and get over to my good side right away. Everything is better with a Queen soundtrack. I know I've said that many, many times before. Wait, didn't wasn't there a was there a Baywatch spinoff that was a total X Files ripoff? Yeah, Baywatch yes, Nights. Baywatch Nights. Yeah, <laughs> I love which I people not should a, have held against Baywatch just, yeah. just I, on principle. I, but, I watched not a single episode of it, but I thought that the concept got, was so ridiculous. I got through ten minutes of one, and it was literally it was David. I I was I just was channel flipping, and suddenly I saw it's David Hasselhoff holding a gun, walking up. The cheapest dry ice, green fog thing you've ever seen. And he's saying into some sort of walkie-talkie, I think I'm entering another dimension. (laughs) 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 And I just kind of went... Uh, it's, uh, it's great because uh, it takes place yeah. in the same as the I know. the booby show. The next day, he goes out to the beach and his his speedo or whatever. What did you do last night? I went to another dimension and fought crime. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's werewolves and sea yeah. monsters. That's the thing is, if I did that in my time off and I went to work, I wouldn't not talk about werewolves. I know it just doesn't come up. I guess it's God, not relevant. That's the weird thing. Pam Anderson comes running out. What do you do? No. No aliens walk among us. Yeah. Really? 
He would just. It's he, crazy. He would be the David Icke of that. That. <laughs> that, that uh, see, that's the show I wanted to see. The with. crazy person. <laughs> that would be great. Though, if you have one guy who's a lunatic conspiracy theorist, and you get his show, and it all turns out to be true. Yeah. And then you have him occasionally have cameos where he goes back in. They're like, "Oh, this guy." <laughs> <laughs> have him have him be completely right. You know, I really wish that I could have seen the uh, 1954 climax adaptation of Casino Royale. Peter Lorre, the TV one, yeah, oh, the TV one where Peter Lorre, the American one, Chip, he was Jimmy Chip. Bond in that. Yeah, yeah, he was card sharp Jimmy Bond. It's uh, it's weird. Is I it? I have seen it. Yeah, it. Uh, Felix Leiter is a uh, uh, British guy in that one. Hmm. Yeah, everybody's flip flopped hmm. because nobody would, nobody wanted Bonnie. So Barry Nelson, of all people, is uh, card sharp Jimmy Bond. I wanted to talk about how I I don't actually like the tropes. Oh, like it, I, that's actually because you were bringing up all these things. I I've realized that now, having grown up with Bond, I really like the fact that the Daniel Craig stuff makes fun of the tropes. I I think I I mean I hate to say it, but I buy into the them doing it all differently now. I it's almost like, um, you know, all the superhero movies are now really gritty, and we're all supposed to make fun of that. But I actually, I kind of like them all gritty now. And I really think that's what they're doing, uh, literally, you know, with these. Uh, you know, it's nothing like the Pierce Brosnan over the top, you know, crazy uh, uh, technology and things like that. But my favorite, um, actually, the one thing that the Bond, I think the Brosnan ones are my least favorite Bond movies out of all of them. For whatever reason, why does the 90s feel more dated to me? Than the sixties and seventies, I don't know what that is, but they're not realistic. It's it feels <laughs> there's no grit. Yeah, I, you know, I, they're just crazy. I'll say this: they're insane. Well, I don't really as, want as Bond po- movies to be realistic. Yeah. I mean, really, if he was realistic, no, he'd be filling out paperwork the whole time. There's different levels of realism. I mean, in Die Another Day, there's the guy with the electricity suit. I mean, what what the hell was that? I did. Like, there's just a certain with diamonds in his face. I love diamond his face. face. Diamond face. <laughs> guy I adored. I love that shit. Invisible but car the and surfing the ice is when I lost it. <laughs> the surfing the ice right. is when he just got too hot. My favorite Pierce Brosnan <laughs> anything, honestly, is the scene in GoldenEye where the bad guys are getting away and suddenly a tank bursts through the wall with the Bond theme mm. playing. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, no, that's the best moment in that movie. That is the best moment in all of Brosnan's movies, period. I, yeah. no. I love GoldenEye. No, I no, no. It. I love it. I, I, no, it, it really is good. I do like the, the hovercraft chase in the, the North Korea one. No, 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 no. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, when he's having the big fight with the big blonde Aryan odd job guy, um, and suddenly, just completely out of cut, just in the middle of nowhere, he just leans towards. I owe you an unpleasant death, Mister Bond. <laughs> 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 really? Now? Like I don't? <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna try to kill James Bond, you gotta say it. You imagine he's like legendary to henchmen. Oh yeah, the, the right. There years ago, TBS years ago, TBS used to do. Bond marathons, yep. and they had these inspired commercials. They had one that was just like a supercut of all the girls saying, "Oh, James!" <laughs> all of them. No, they did. Yeah, and and then so the good. other one that I loved even more was all the villains saying, "Kill 
Bond. <laughs> Bond must die. Kill Bond now. And it's just, you know, like 40 years of this. It was so awesome. I would give I real it. money to see that on YouTube somewhere. Oh, that probably is on YouTube. I saw a collection of just post-mortem catchphrases. <laughs> And yeah. my favorite one of all time, this is my favorite Bond catchphrase. I posted it on Facebook last night. It's in Thunderball where he's sitting on the beach and it's brought to his attention that the bad guy twisting the silencer on his gun is sneaking up on him. And he leans back kind of casually, picks up the spear gun, spins around and fires it, pitting the guy to a tree. Just poof! And, he's, oh! and he gets up and goes, I think he got the point. <laughs> That's I love that so much. I love that. That and I really think Connery was the best at the one-liner delivery though. I think Daniel Craig doesn't do it often, but he is good at it. And I think there's different ways you can do the one-liner. Um I think Craig and Connery and I think uh I think I think Dalton did this too, but it's a joke that a sociopath tells himself to make himself laugh? <laughs> Pretty much. The, the thing, right. Dalton, yeah. Dalton did it, but Dalton, we, you got to remember, before Dalton, we'd had years and years of Roger Moore aging and smirking and being more and more inappropriate with women. Yeah, he's, and, like, and, he's like their grandpa. <laughs> this guy can get a, a good parking spot by, at Denny's now. By the, by the time it's a view to a kill, it's like your creepy uncle groping your young babysitter. It's just wrong. <laughs> and, and suddenly there's Dalton and he's young and he's hip and he did the one-liners but he just spat them with such rage he got the boot you know it's, <laughs> right. those are teeth. yeah i love you timothy dalton uh he's one of the best parts of hot fuzz too oh yeah i uh, adore hot fuzz you, you oh, look yeah. at the you said the roger moore thing when he's being kind of a creeper especially when it's clear that this is an old man bond and they're not playing it as old man bond they're playing it as he's just bond and we're just gonna play along with the fact that grandpa wants to be a secret agent <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what's so embarrassing about some of the parts about, like, I think, A uh, Man with the Golden Gun is that, uh, and, you know, it's a movie that they just injected, like, kung fu in because kung fu movies were popular in those days. Um, and, like, you have these scenes when when J- James Bond is inevitably supposed to go up against people that are incredibly well-trained in some martial art. And either he has other people do it for him just by happenstance. He just gets to stand back and have it happen. But when he does actually have to engage with someone, it's and they, and they put Roger Moore in there, it's so bad. Bad. It is he. He he can't move properly, and you know, like he throws a guy off a bridge, and it's clear that the guy's a stunt guy, and so he kind of just puts his hand on his jacket, and the guy, the the, the stunt actor, just leaps, and he kind of <laughs> just does the throwing motion, you know, and it just it did, it never connects. It doesn't feel raw at all. I always know? called that the Hulk Hogan problem. Is hmm. that Hulk Hogan decided he wanted to continue to be a professional wrestler well into his fifties, and that they're asking us. And professional wrestling does this all the time. They ask you to suspend your disbelief, but there are fucking limits. Right. And when the guy clearly can't move and his knees are clearly bad, and when they take the camera off him when he's running to the ring, it says, I don't know if this guy can beat up a 20-year-old. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think they do that, especially in like a like View to a Kill. The difference in age between him and Octopussy is like 20 years. It's a two-year difference. It's like somebody destroyed one of Roger Moore's Horcruxes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what happened, but it was like, holy shit. Did they leave him out in the rain or something? (laughs) You got to take care of your Roger Moore. You got to keep him nice, clean, and dry. Well... 
I see. I'm the. He was probably one of the most successful Bonds. He he lasted longer than most of them. Seven movies, and um, you know his movies made the most money. But he just to me, uh, to me, he's always he's the worst. Though he is, he's the worst of <laughs> he's them. He's the worst. The, the, it's it's just so cheesy. Is the problem? Well, even the, che- well, the cheese had to be part of the appeal, though. The cheese, yeah, but I mean, he's like somebody pretending to be James Bond. He doesn't seem like James Bond. No, and the trouble is, he was horribly miscast. I mean, before Bond, he was the saint. He was right. Simon Templar, <laughs> right. and that was mm. that was perfect. Simon Templar is a smirky gentleman thief. He, you know, he just kind of ambles through, you know, these light, fun, caper stories, making fun of everybody. He, he's much more about his wits than his fists. It's, it was perfect for him. He was, he's the perfect drawing room gentleman thief hero guy. Right. James Bond is a soldier that can wear a tux well. Right. You know, that's his thing. He is there. There's no no live and let die is probably as close as it got mm. to Roger Moore being dangerous. And he's still surrounded by all these thug black guys, except for the weird part in the middle where it's smoking in the bandit for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, since, since we're clearly doing B-roll right now. Yeah. That's yeah. clearly what we're doing. I need to mention this because I had I had this I ran across was reading a book about um bureaucracy and dystopia uh and the the author references um sort of common common tropes as they relate to things like cops and bureaucrats and stuff because cops are just bureaucrats of one type or another um Unless they're the cops that take out the bureaucrats. That's true. <laughs> just, the bureaucrats won't let me do my job. She was 16 years old. <laughs> so he, this guy provides a uh, a comparison between James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. So aside from the two things that he starts with is that they're the same. They're both London-based crime fighters. And they're both sort of these weird permanent adolescents. And maybe they might even border on sociopaths. They're kind of in that same realm, right? There's something fantastic about them, but they get to live in this world where they get to be they get to be whatever they want to. However, Holmes is asexual and fond of cocaine and opium, whereas Bond is oversexed and is really uninterested in drugs except for liquor. Bond is a consummate professional in his job, um, but Holmes is an amateur that often does his job better than the better than the professionals. Bond is constantly getting distracted and his cover is being blown and he's getting captured. Uh, whereas Holmes is so proficient that uh, the authorities don't even know that he's working usually. Holmes seeks information about past acts of violence inside the country of England, whereas Bond seeks info about future acts of violence against the country of England, outside of the country. So it's kind of like they're two manifestations of the same character, just in the obverse-inverse relationship. I feel like the show, Sherlock right now, though, is taking it in the direction of Bond. And, Mm. you know, I've been talking with my wife. My wife and I are big, huge, huge Sherlock fans. And we've been talking about the level of crossover because you know i mean like they're sending him out in this show right. i don't know if you guys have been watching it but they're I sending him seen. out into europe and he's basically acting as a secret agent yeah. working for his brother mycroft who is essentially am so it's not during the show necessarily but that's sort of like the between the show stuff he's doing um and it's escalating more and more to being this like sort of pan-European uh, villains as opposed to, uh, you know, and crime lords, essentially. I mean, right. that's the way they're doing right. Mycroft, obviously, um, as opposed to, you know, sort of just solving up 
mystery. What what do you what do you feel about the comparison, Greg? Since you're someone who actually writes for the character of Holmes. Well, the the work that I do for Airship Twenty Seven, our niche is you know plain vanilla, old school Holmes. No no vampires, no time travel, no updating, <laughs> no, you know, no historical cameos. We just do Holmes. But uh, but I do think about Holmes a lot. And uh, the beauty of Sherlock is that clearly they think about Sherlock Holmes a lot, too. And even though they've updated everything on Sherlock, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis are doing this amazing thing where they they take a piece of the Sherlock Holmes mythology and they say, how would that work today? Mm-hmm. I mean, the original Holmes was all about telegrams. So this home te- Holmes texts text, everybody, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know. And the the old stories, the irregulars, his network of spies were street kids. Well, today they're the homeless, right? You know, and so on and so forth. And really, what it is, um, in a sense, it's extraordinarily well crafted fan fiction. Like the and Mark Gaddis has been is, very upfront about that. Isn't that, isn't that what Stephen right. Moffat said? Yeah, Didn't, yeah, we talked about that in that the last episode I was in of Radio versus the Martians, where he literally calls it what he's doing. Uh, uh, fanfic hmm. um and therefore can't criticize you know <laughs> the fans out there writing fanfic yeah but hmm. the the thing of it is i mean there there is such a thing as good fan fiction a, a lot of us started that way hmm. you mm-hmm. know that's hell that's what i'm doing for airship 27 right now is yeah. you know public domain characters that we're going back and doing new stories for right but it's good enough that we get paid. It's it's kind of on the level of like a Star Trek novel or something like that. We're sure. looking at a licensed property, and the mandate is don't break the toys. <laughs> right, right. Do a good job. Bring your craft to it. You know. Right. Take that, Brad Meltzer. <laughs> <laughs> well, not to get all inside baseball about it, but you know, Brad Meltzer. I swear to God, his his Justice League that he wrote for DC was. Honest to God, it was like somebody that grew up in my era that loved that Len Wein Satellite League and thought, I'm going to do the slash fiction version of this. Yeah. And, and slash in all versions of that word. It's <laughs> seriously. It's, and, you know, and, and I don't do, know. Do you mean having a pregnant Spock? Is I that what you mean? Uh, I don't. Because when I think of Slash, that's what I think of. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> no, truthfully, it does come from Star Trek. It comes from K slash S. No, 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 no. I know that. I'm just no, talking, know, I, yeah. I'm just thinking that the, when I, whenever I think of anyone mentioning Slash, even when it's in the context of another series, all I picture is a pregnant Spock with Kirk's baby. That's, that's the, I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, that's look, always looking, and forever going to be that looking, You know, Looking back on season three of original Star Trek, I'm actually shocked they didn't do a pregnant Spock episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of baffled at i don't understand where that impulse comes from i mean i seriously getting to work on a sherlock holmes story myself was a bucket list item for me that's that's huge it's like one of my favorite publication credits another one was getting to do a a nero wolf story for the nero wolf Hmm. magazine a few years ago but i approached it with the kind of oh my god i'm being allowed into the gallery kind of a feeling it would never occur to me in a million years oh hot damn i'm finally in here now i'm gonna get them all naked and fucking and killing each other (laughs) you know because that's what the world is waiting for and i don't understand that impulse i i just don't i'm just gonna say that you know that that same impulse is what made 50 shades of gray a bestseller (laughs) and i don't understand that it's like they're going you know this thing needed some fucking (laughs) what if i make the whole story the fucking And then I don't want to get sued, so I change the names. 
Uh, that's, I don't. I, a, a lot of authors start out as fanfic writers. I mean, that's pretty normal. Well, it's right? it's it's training wheels. Honest to God, it yeah. really is. And and well, that, licensed fiction is turned into such a huge business that it, you can do that now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you just take you take out the world building, then it's just story crafting. I mean, that's the training wheels. Yeah, I think it, I like to believe it is a starting point, but I don't know. I just it bothers me a little, Mitch, when. When I hear a writer or an aspiring writer who has no ambition to move beyond that and tell mm. their own stories, because I just think, well, obviously you love telling stories and you love writing. I kind of want to know where you can go with this if you have to start from a zero point. Well, I think a lot of us that work in this area, and this includes the guys that are doing the new Bond novels. I mean, I can see, so, you know, they're they're... Well, we'll get back to this because it's a low point for me, but there are guys that are doing Bond novels that just have no business doing it. They just have no grasp of it. They have no to, feel for to, it. To me, though, I mean, uh, I, I know it's your stock and trade, and it's probably uh, it's probably one of the things that you really enjoy doing. But for my, my approach to sort of expanded universe stuff is almost exclusively through Star Trek, and I don't haven't even read that many Star Trek novels. But for me, I don't I don't ever take them seriously enough to think – wow, these are great and I wish they would turn it into a movie or I wish they would turn it into a TV episode. I think that, and I hope that most readers just appreciate it for what it is and don't feel like it has to be, it ever has to be canon. That if, if it's good if it's good on its own, if it's a good story on its own, then it flies. Um, but it doesn't need it doesn't need to be, you know, part of this, the line of secession or uh, up I, to I do not disagree with any of that. I do not disagree with any of that. I'm totally okay with the idea of, you know, only the stuff in my head counts. Right. The head you cannon. Know, yeah. The the idea that all and there are people that have fallen on this sword and God bless them, they're completely batshit insane and they need <laughs> to go get day jobs, but there are people that have tried to reconcile all the different versions of Star right. Trek out there. Oh good well, luck. Well I think yeah, and, I think there I think there's a difference between the people who have an obsessive need to connect the dots despite the fact that it's ne- would never, ne- never meant to be connected. And people who don't care about that and who just, like some of the old, old TOS novelization stuff were just, were just crazy. We're just like Looney Tunes crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, but, and there was never any, those were, were never intended to be like, well, this is, I'm going to insert this between, you know, episode 77 and episode 78. You no, know what but I mean? That's, like, but see, that's the beauty of the Star Trek approach. And I think that's what gives James Bond its power. Mm. We all know what James Bond looks like. We all know how he's supposed to be, even though that picture through dozens of books and movies and comic strips and comic books is not at all consistent at all. No. At all. Um, And but we all know we all know what James Bond is like. We know what world he lives in. Right. That's how you do it. You can always tell when somebody's gone a little too far astray. And I think that's the difference between, you know, I don't I don't insist that it be canon, but if you're going to call it James Bond, it better have this <laughs> right. and this and right. this and this. So it's like James Bond is porn. Like, you know it when you see it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you can't define That what wouldn't James be Bond my is. go-to comparison, but it's apt. It, but it, I know it when I see it. Well, it's the truth. Moonraker and Casino Royale are just diametrically opposed Yeah. in yeah. terms so, of tone, but they're both valid James Bond movies. Sure. Did 
you know they offered Clint Eastwood the role for that movie? Oh fuck you! <laughs> Live and let die. And he, yeah, and he he declined because he wasn't English. I want that exact same plot, but starring Dirty Harry. I want Harry <laughs> Keller. I want he gets stuck in the crocodile island, and he just pulls out a, three, a forty-four Magnum and starts taking out Crocs. Right. He's like, oh fuck this. Uh, it's like all, oh, the, we did, all the people that we did the whole time, and we, not, we didn't mention Scaramanga at all. Oh, did not. Yeah, mention actually, if it Lee. was actually in the actually, you know, Doctor Kananga would not be a Caribbean dictator in a Dirty Harry movie. He'd just be a liberal judge. Well, <laughs> 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 you know that's, that's weird funny. because Dirty Harry, the the characters, like a conservative wet dream, but the plots have been very liberal. The, mm. Which what was it? Was it Magnum Force with the corrupt cops that are appoint themselves judge and jury, and that's like a liberal nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> what was it? It was like I remember that. Liberals. I gotta watch those. I know that Greg, we've talked about this before, and this is on my short list of ones I want to do, which is violent vigilante stories. Oh yeah. Whether it's you know Mac Bolin or The Punisher or Dirty Harry, Death Wish. You know, I'm just, telling you, that would make a great episode. I'm I'm really excited about it. There's so much of that stuff. It's just, oh, it is a bit of a, a right-wing wet dream. Well, Bolin is the right-wing wet dream. Oh, what was it? I was talking to Paul about this, and um, uh, we were talking about why is it that when a movie is like an unapologetic, like right-wing wet dream nutcase sort of movie, it's still fun even if it's bad, but... Like the left wing equivalent, which is like Captain Planet, is just so stupid. I don't know. I I can't answer that question. I can't reconcile that. I actually did a column once about the idea that you know, I'm and I'm totally I'm a super progressive liberal English teacher pacifist kind of a guy. I you know I live in a neighborhood where I know that violence is not cool, but it's really scary and unpleasant. And, uh, it, you know, people get hurt and there's consequences and so on. But my comfort food go-to thing is always the guy that solves problems with a fist or a gun. I mean, I love Sherlock Holmes. I love Nero Wolf, But my comfort food stuff is Jack Bauer and Bolin and the Warriors. And, you know, that's it relaxes me in some weird way that I I. I don't, you know, occasionally I wonder, it's like, am I just damaged? What's the matter with me? You know? I don't get it. Like, I love Jonah Hex. I and, love. Yeah, Jonah Hex is another one. And I, you know, I really, what I come back to is that, you know, in fiction, it's never wrong. Yeah. Well, it also it's never is right. And it usually exists in a world where that does make sense because it's kind of a cartoon world. Well, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. in Dirty Harry's world, the only rational response is to shoot first. Yeah. That's, you know. It's, it's kind of weird. It's duh. like the same thing with, like, Ayn Rand. If you, yeah. She has to create a cartoon world where liberals and, you know, unions are these complete monsters mm-hmm. for her to do it. I mean, if she tries to put that in a realistic setting, there is no grim and gritty Atlas Shrugged. No. Because then it's just a movie about assholes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's just like video games. I mean, I, I literally think of that. I mean, because, you know, we take out all of our aggressions, even those of us who are nicey nice pacifist people (laughs) you still need to get online once in a while and kill some stuff and then they build a world where that's what you're supposed to do and nice guys do that i I actually Uh, was doing that for a while on uh, red dead redemption multiplayer um i would go out and kill racists i was like a bounty hunter for racists 
And it was actually a lot of fun. I never got a posse together for it, but I probably should have. Um, are you familiar with Red Dead Redemption? I'm familiar with it, but I'm really not. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, Ryan. I'm just not a games guy. I'm just not. Right, I, I take I all that and I put is... it into my writing. You know, it's. That's what, I, I think that's my point is that if if you're not if you don't have the outlet of video games, you're going to turn to fiction that does the same thing. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that's kind of what I sort of see with what I would do. I would do things in Red Dead Redemption that I would never do in real life. Oh yeah. Um, I did some serious Jonah Hex things to some bad guys. Normally, I would just shoot them, but I think the there was a quest. I don't know if you played Red Dead Redemption, Ryan. No. There's a quest. I forget what it's called. Where. This uh, farmer's wife is like upset because her husband is missing and wants you to go look for her. So you go snoop around the woods where he was last seen and you find this bloody patch on a rock. And you're like, I don't know. And you go back and report you couldn't find anything. This happens a couple more times. And eventually you find the guy and he's being eaten by a cannibal. <laughs> and, in, and in that moment, I could have shot the cannibal, but I did something different. I used my lasso and I tied him up. And I carried him to the middle of the woods and dropped him. And one of the things that you get as a little implement to help you go hunting in that game is animal pheromones. Mm. And I sprinkled <laughs> them all over him. Uh-huh. So, And what that does is it basically it attracts animals to spawn into the game to go to that area and you can shoot them. Except if they see a random person there, they might attack them. And in this case, it was a couple of coyotes. They found the dude and they ate the motherfucker. And I thought there was some sort of weird fucked up Jonah Hex justice in the cannibal being eaten. I mean, that, that game is famous for open world. I mean, what you're describing, uh, I mean, that's amazing that they're adding that kind of that level of detail. I mean, it's a, obviously an emergent behavior, but that's what you're always looking for in open world game design like that. Yeah, right? you can also put them on the train tracks, which is the other thing you can do in that game. And you actually I mean, that's where, you get an achievement it, for it, too. I think it's like... Sn- it, <laughs> and the That's picture awesome. is like the picture of the achievement is a top hat with a mustache. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's a couple. That's awesome. But yeah, uh, it's it's just pretty crazy. But the thing I was kind of getting to is that what you know, liberals enjoying you know really, I, I guess you could say regressive entertainment where you're doing terrible things that you would find abhorrent if if somebody did it in real life. And there's there's no part of you who goes, oh, I wish somebody like that was real. It's like this is just a fantasy life. Yeah, I never have that wish yeah it's like it, it never wish? it never occurs to me that you know you know what this country needs more of is guys like jack bauer i mean jack yeah. bauer is a terrible <laughs> terrible a person yeah he is awful a, a tv show where they make the amnesty international guy the bad guy you know yeah he's like the red tape stopping me from waterboarding some guy <laughs> like fuck um but what also kind of gets me on the opposite of that spectrum is I've met over the years a number of arch conservatives that are really into classic sci-fi or old school Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And then when something comes in, like a gay character or something, you know, vaguely, oh, my God, something in this fiction might look a little bit like real life more than it has in the past. And, oh, my God, there's a black guy in the show now. And, and they flip the fuck out. How dare they use this science fiction to push their political message? Like, have you fucking watched any of this show ever? How the fuck are you a Star Trek fan and not con all it's of the u- liberals? It's a utopian, it's a utopian I, I, I story. I don't understand that either. I, right. I don't know how. Like, what science fiction mm-hmm. have you fucking been watching? Have you seen the Earth, the day the Earth stood still? Have you seen the every episode of Star Trek that's about how racism is bad? 
I mean, seriously. Race, how about how war is bad? Yeah. How how many science fiction stories are about the horrors of war? Yeah. The post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. Earth, the the nuclear winter. The, how the... we need to get our shit together in the real world and stop being destruct- destructive assholes. Yeah. And maybe we could have nice things like on Star Trek. <laughs> Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Let the girl go, punk. Can't just let her go. It would be just you and me. (laughs) Come on. Make my day. That's not a bad idea, is it?